The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Friday, October the 13th. Unlucky for some, but we're not superstitious around here. And you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast, Wrap of the Week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Our unlucky panellists this week are Harry McGee and Jack Horgan-Jones from our political staff. Hello to you both. Hi, Hugh. Hi, Hugh. We've got some very serious subjects to address this week, including the fallout from events in Israel and Gaza, and of course the more localised issues raised by this week's budget. We're also going to have a go at answering that perennial question of Irish politics, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, what is the difference? And as we always do on a Friday, we're going to be picking our favourite articles of the week from the Irish Times. But first, six days, it only feels like a lot longer, but only six days since Hamas launched its attack across Gaza's border with Israel that left more than a thousand Israelis dead. Most of them civilians, many of them children and young people, uh, slaughtered in acts of of appalling barbarity. Since those events have unfolded rapidly as Israel uh, re-established control over its own territory and then launched a massive aerial assault on Gaza itself, along with a blockade of power and water and other essentials in preparation for what seems certain to be a land invasion of some sort into Gaza, where many Israelis are still being held as as hostage. That's a recitation, Harry, of what happened, but really it barely touches on it. It's been a pretty horrific uh, week or even less than a week. It's just shocking and, um, you know, it's very hard to find the exact words to describe the enormity of what has happened over the course of the past week. And there's just a few things that that I think are are possibly noteworthy. The first thing is that uh, the attack last Saturday by Hamas, the evaluation of that attack and the way that it has... um, uh, impacted here in Ireland. I think it has led to a lot of people who would have been um, uncritical in their support of Palestine to maybe reevaluate uh, that kind of uncritical support. And we'll come back to that in a second. I think of more, uh, what's more pressing at the moment is what's about to be unleashed over the next 24 to 48 hours. Uh, we have had a horrific attack and uh, predictably, I think, uh, because we've seen them do it so many times before, uh, Israel is is about to unleash a, an Old Testament scale revenge on the Gaza Strip. And we are definitely going to see a, a reprisal, collective punishment and scores of thousands of people uh, ending up um, dead. This is going to be just uh, it's it's it, it almost doesn't bear contemplation uh, what is going to unfold over the next 24 hours. It was a very good article that we carried. It's a Financial Times article, but it's one that we carried in the in the uh, Irish Times during the course of the week, uh, which looks at, at what might happen over the next uh, five or six days. As people know, uh, Hamas has uh, built this huge series of tunnels uh, underneath the, the Gaza Strip. They call it the Gaza Metro, and there's scores of kilometres of, of tunnel. Uh, it's there where they're probably keeping uh, the hostages. Uh, some of it has been impermeable uh, to um, to Israel. Since the last intifada, it's been relatively quiet and Hamas is believed to have built up a huge arsenal of rockets and weapons. At the same time, uh, Israel is the, the biggest and best equipped 
army in the region. Uh, they have extraordinary technology to uh, aid them and they have just formidable firepower. So when they go in to invade uh, Gaza over the next 24 hours, uh, they will have um, tanks that are three stories high that are capable of demolishing buildings that have five or six layers of air attack beginning with kind of kamikaze drones and helicopters at lower levels. Then you'll have fighter jets uh, at a higher level. And then at a higher level than that, uh, you'll have the surveillance aircraft uh, that are coordinating everything. And what they will do is that they will go in and in a very short space of time, they will destroy everything in their path. Part of that is designed to uh, ensure that Hamas uh, militants aren't in a position to regroup, but also because of the, the shock and awe nature of it as well, they can create as much damage as possible well in advance of the international community reacting to it and putting political pressure uh, on Israel uh, to resent what it's doing. So already before it even begins, uh, we are getting a very, very negative reaction from European, Euro, European Union leaders uh, in particular. Michal Martin was speaking in Cork uh, this morning and called on Israel essentially to resent the decision to ask 1.1 million people in Gaza to evacuate over the next 24 hours. And his, his argument was, you know, that two wrongs don't make a right. And he said, what's going to be perpetrated if we are to believe everything that Israel is promising is going to be deeply and utterly uh, wrong and will amount to a, a war crime. Another thing that I think that's very interesting and going back to the domestic reaction uh, to what happened were the words of Mary Robinson yesterday. She was interviewed in RTE yesterday. And she said, let us make no mistake about what happened last Saturday. It was a war crime and a very, very serious war crime. And that has created problems for some parties of the left uh, in Ireland who have been very uh, unstinting in the support for the Palestinian cause. And there would be huge sympathy, I think, generally in Ireland uh, for the Palestinian cause and the way in which the, uh, the, the notion of a, a, a two-state solution uh, has been absolutely uh, dismissed and ignored by Israel over many generations. And Palestinians have had to suffer illegal settlements and further incursions into the territory and been forced into smaller and smaller uh, ghettos and, and, uh, and areas. You know, Gaza is a strip that's 40 kilometres long or 50 kilometres long and only two kilometres wide in places. And it's been described as an open prison. You know, there's no access or egress uh, uh, that, that you would find in any other uh, uh, state or any other country in the, in the world. And there is a huge population living uh, within that very narrow strip, strip of land. So what happened last Saturday, what I, what I, what I thought was interesting was, and particularly from, from Sinn Féin, was that over the course of the weekend on social media, um, Sinn Féin representatives completely ignored the fact that Hamas had perpetrated this war crime and focused instead on, uh, uh, on either saying that Israel really was the root cause of it because of its oppression of Palestinians over many years, or secondly, talked about the uh, terrible reprisal that Israel uh, was going to do. Or the third strand was they criticised Western leaders who criticised the attack, saying they criticised this attack, but didn't criticise uh, previous Israeli atrocities. And that wasn't completely true. But I mean, judged by its own merits, this was an atrocity. We had 700 people killed. We might even have had more than a thousand people killed in a single day, some of them in the most arbitrary and horrific fashion. And it must be called out according to its Did own Did Sinn Féin shift its position? They shifted its position over the course of the weekend. So we had 
a lot of its uh, public representatives like Chris Andrews, uh, Paul Donnelly, uh, Chris Hazard, uh, uh, who's an MLA in Northern Ireland, uh, saying, you know, that, that the conditions, you know, caused this, blaming the, the conditions for it and saying it was inevitable that this would happen without actually specifically referring to the event itself, which I thought was was distasteful, to be quite honest. Then Matt Carty issued a, a very carefully worded statement on Saturday when he said that, that casualties uh, affecting casualties, civilian casualties on either side is always wrong, uh, but without a particular reference to uh, the attack itself. And it took a little Monday uh, when Mary Lou MacDonald did an interview with uh, Brian Dobson on the News at One for her to condemn what had happened outright in, in unadorned, unvarnished, uh, straight language. I think that was necessary. But at the same time, uh, she put up a Palestinian flag on her Twitter account and those who were uh, uh, on the backbenches of Sinn Féin and others who were associated with the parties uh, continued uh, to focus in on, on Israel uh, rather than, than, than making any direct reference to the Hamas uh, attack. And the problem for, for um, Sinn Féin is that Hamas, it's a, it's, it's a militant Islamicist organisation. It's not off the left. Uh, it has uh, tendencies. It's democratically elected, but some of no, it was the democratically elected more over a decade ago. A decade ago, yeah. And and the laws that it has has, has implemented within the Gaza Strip have been, in, in some instances, according to Sharia law. So they've been quite, 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 uh, quite anti-democratic and uh, anti-Semitic and anti-Semitic in in some of the things. So I I think that that there might be a case within Sinn Fein. I'm not quite sure, but I think Mary Lou Macdonald's quite strong statement on Monday might be an indication of that, that they be, might be re-evaluating uh, their uh, approach uh, and their their uh, focus in relation uh, to the Middle East and to Palestine. I think they will always remain a very strongly pro-Palestine, as, as many Irish political parties do. But I think that they might be reassessing uh, the manner in which they kind of approach, they, 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 they phrase and nuance their approach to Palestine. I wonder how that's likely to play out, though, as the next few days and indeed weeks unfold, Jack. I mean, the, just the absolutely disgusting images that were coming out of Israel in the aftermath of the Hamas attack, which, to be fair to some people, took some hours or in some cases some days to be absolutely clear what had happened. You know, the kind of massacre of people at this at this outdoor concert, mm. the uh, children murdered, all, the, all those kinds of things did, didn't become absolutely clear until Sunday perhaps or Monday didn't become more clear. I mean, one of the things I've observed is certainly not the most important one, but it's certainly part of it is it was just illustrated how poisonous and useless social media discourses for this and the way in which it can actually poison the political waters, you know, as well without, you know, preventing people from just looking at, you know, the evidence of their own eyes and mm. just retreating into their into their silos. But I wonder what Harry's talking about there. How's that likely to play over the next couple of weeks? Because the reality is now we're in a phase where all the news is going to be about Israeli, essentially carpet bombing, huge so-called collateral damage. We're going to see image after image of of dead civilians, of all kinds of horror, and it's all going to be in one direction. Uh, and I wonder how that plays in terms of what Harry's talking about, about Sinn Féin's position, or indeed, or indeed, or indeed the Irish government's position. Well, I think that's correct. I mean, the nature of the, the Israel-Palestine conflict over the, the years is, is one of asymmetry, um, and that's going to play out in the aftermath of this. You know, a, a kind of a terrorist raid on on a state will be followed up by, uh, I think Harry described it as shock and awe style campaign. Um, and I think that the the focus will very much shift away from 
from what happened to Israel to what Israel is is, do, is going to do to, to Gaza. And that will become the frame, I think. Uh, and that will be where the news agenda is and the commentary on that, I suspect, from both Sinn Féin and the government will be quite similar. And I think that the Sinn Féin stance will follow on from the kind of approach that uh, that that Mary Lou uh, McDonald took in that in that news at one interview, and I think that um, it'll it, it's interesting. Newton Emerson had a piece this week where he pointed out that the that the differences between the president's statement, uh, that's President Michael D. Higgins, and and Mary Lou McDonald's statements were were not a world apart. So I think that you'll you'll actually see, you know, broad stroke similar approach from government and opposition uh, when it comes to Gaza. And I think I think it's interesting actually as well the the. The degree to which the government and the Taoiseach and the Taunish to here have quite quickly shifted that frame. Uh, they they called out the attack, but very quickly as it became clear that there was a massing of forces and that uh, likely ground invasion of Gaza was to follow with all the associated death and destruction. Uh, they were very clearly part of uh, a, a group of European nations that is urging, you know, non-escalation the, the primacy of humanitarian concerns, which actually, interestingly, seems to be askance with the with the the, the kind of commission leadership, hmm. which has been quite strongly behind Israel. I think that Ursula von der Leyen is, is visiting Israel today on Friday. Well, aren't the dynamics of German politics in particular are very much 100% behind Israel in all cases, and there's all kinds of cultural and historical reasons we don't need to go into for that. Sure. But that has been very much the German position, and I'd imagine that that will feed into Ursula von der Leyen's and the Commission's position. Almost certainly that's the case. Um, but I think it's interesting as well that Ireland was calling, was seeking the insertion of a particular clause in the, in the EU Council uh, statement that was put out this week alongside Denmark, and I think it was Luxembourg as well. So perhaps there's a kind of caucus of smaller uh, European nations who aren't at IDEM with the with the Commission leadership on this, and it'd be interesting to see how that how that plays out. But it's very clear, you know, that the government is is now marking Israel's card and is is looking to kind of frame and contextualise um, the action that is going to happen in Gaza in some interesting ways. Most interestingly, I thought was the contribution from the Taoiseach and the Doll this week when he said, "You can't condemn." And I'm paraphrasing, but he said, "You can't condemn Vladimir Putin for." attacking power plants in Ukraine and not condemn Israel for attacking power plants or putting power plants out of commission in Gaza. So very much foregrounding that kind of Mary Robinson approach that we heard in the news at one interview yesterday to to, to focus on, on the humanitarian side. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out against what is, you know, I mean, Harry, Harry's described it there at length better than, better than I can. I mean, it is... Um, a, a gripping and terrible vision, you know, that's going to play out over over the weekend. Because another reality of this, Harry, is that the current Israeli government is the most right, most right wing government in Israeli history, and it includes elements which, by many many people, would characterise as uh, far right or even fascist in terms of their understanding of the of the ethnic conflict and how it should be resolved. Um, and we've we've been seeing that uh, on the West Bank over the last uh, over the last year year or more. We've been seeing it in Jerusalem. Um, and we've been seeing all kinds of atrocities. This is not a government that the EU should be standing four square behind on every point because there, there, are, there are unacceptable act- activities happening there. Yes, Hugh, you spoke about um, anti-Semitic tendencies within Hamas and you get anti-Arab, you know, um, uh, racist tendencies uh, among some of the uh, is- Israeli government. The defence minister, uh, when he was promising that everything would be cut off, electricity, power supply... Uh, access to and from, he described Hamas as as, as human animals, and mm. in, in a way described 
gazans as human animals. And that was completely and utterly uh, unacceptable. I mean, neither side, unfortunately, uh, um, over the past week uh, of the protagonists, those who are involved in making the decisions to do what they've done, uh, you know, ha- have particular right on, on their side. And and unfortunately, both sides need to be called out. And as Neil Martin was saying this morning, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. And we're seeing one wrong uh, being followed by another deeply worrying wrong as well. Interestingly, Sinn Féin representatives are saying that the government hadn't reacted with with the same kind of vigour in relation to what Israel was doing. But I mean, the evidence from this week is that they have. Mm. I mean, Leo Varadkar last night was saying that there was, you know, a clear breach of international law uh, already evident in the response that Israel has perpetrated. And as Jack was talking about, the, the comments that have been made in the Dáil and elsewhere this week uh, by ministers in relation to it, you know, have called Israel out. Uh, for everything that Israel has done. It's not been done sort of voce. They've been actually quite direct in terms of the criticisms. And, you know, they have been direct in saying that, that what Israel is promising must not uh, proceed with. Does it, it is a right-wing government. It mm-hmm. is the most right-wing government in, in history. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is almost a moderate compared to some of his colleagues in the cabinet. And what has happened is that we've seen a complete breakdown in any prospect of negotiations or talks the prospect of a, of a two-state solution, which has been talked about for 40 years, for 50 years, for more, you know, is as distant now as it ever was. Uh, we've Probably seen, more distance, if anything, I'd say. Yeah, we've seen, since this government has come to power, we've seen the Israeli government encourage settlements. I mean, they used to be illegal settlements, but they, they regard them as that. They've, they've encouraged more settlements to, to take place, more incursions into Palestinian uh, lands. And you do get terrible things on social media, but one of the very good graphics on social media showing the, the change that has happened in that area uh, since 1948 when, when Israel was first uh, established. And what you've seen is that you saw two very distinct parcels of Palestinian land in 1948, both of them relatively sizable, uh, especially in comparison to today. And then you see graphics that, were, that have been done over the succeeding decades, which have shown those two parcels become smaller and smaller and then break up and become kind of, uh, uh, um, uh, you kind of see smaller, smaller, smaller sections uh, until today when, when, they're, when, when both areas have, have become so small as to become uh, unsustainable, really. In and in that regard, there is state. some justification from, from some of the pro-Palestinian voices referring to the West Bank, not to Israel proper, but referring to the, what's happening in the West Bank as a, as a, as a sort of uh, modern apartheid. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. You know, and, it, and that has to be called out. Um, but the, the, the difficulty is that, that those... Um, and, and the other difficulty that the Palestinians have is that Fatah, Fatah, which was once so powerful and which was once the voice of all Palestinians, uh, seems to be to have become a, a very much a faded force in recent years. Mahmoud Abbas, the, the leader, is quite elderly. There doesn't seem to be a succession plan and they don't seem to be displaying the same type of dynamism and the same type of of uh, of vision uh, that was uh, evidence when when Yasser so, Arafat was out so, of pomp so, twenty five or thirty. So years what ago. seems to have happened there, and a few people have commentated on this over the course of the week as as events have developed, is the the world took its eye off 
this conflict. And by the world, I mean the people who actually have real power, so Washington in particular, but other other power centres, including the EU. And what action there was that was going on in the region was actually about these rapprochements which were being negotiated between Israel and Saudi Arabia mm. and other Arab states. And the, the expectation seemed to be, quite a cynical expectation, that you could just leave the Palestinians to rot and the Arab states had arrived at a point where they, they just wanted to, to get on with business and do business with Israel when, when relevant. And it ignored this festering sore of, of Gaza and the West Bank. And in a way, and this is no justification for anything that happened, in a way it was bound to explode. Yeah, one theory that has been proffered during the course of the week as to why this occurred is that Hamas and Palestinians were concerned about the relationships that uh, Israel was fostering uh, with Arab states, uh, with states in, in around the uh, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia in, in particular, and that these kind of geographical deals with former enemies would secure Israel's uh, security. Uh, at the, but at the same time, it would mean that the fate of the Palestinians would effectively be sealed because their former or their 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 former allies or their former uh, uh, supporters uh, would now be in a uh, in a relationship with Israel. And because of that relationship in Israel, with Israel, that Palestinians would be forgotten about. And one of the theories was that, that Hamas uh, was, was concerned uh, that once uh, this deal was finally brokered, uh, that they would have no uh, purchase in terms of uh, influence uh, in, in the region. And that this uh, attack was engineered partly uh, to ensure uh, that Arab, uh, the anger on the Arab street would be such uh, that none of those uh, particular administrations could go ahead. And this very often feeds into it. power plays as well between uh, the Saudis on one side and Iran on the other, Iran being a kind of a key sponsor. Yeah, I mean, there there is talk as well that, that Iran sponsored the Hamas, even though uh, Iran is Shiite in terms of its of its tradition and uh, Hamas is Sunni, but there, there, are, there, are, there are various theories going around. Uh, and some commentators have said that that uh, Iran did sponsor uh, a lot of the equipment and uh, a lot of the training uh, that that went into this particular attack. All this talk, though, finally, Jack, it doesn't really amount to very much in terms of what the Israelis are going to do, whatever the Israelis are going to do over the next week, aren't they? And it's going to be fast and it's going to be horrible. Well, it may not be fast is the thing, because once you once you send troops into, into Gaza, um, mm. ground wars tend not to play out quickly, uh, particularly in condensed urban environments, no matter if you are uh, a military superior force. I mean, uh, the, 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 the conquest of Afghanistan and Iraq was, was quick in a military conventional sense from the United States point of view, but they got bogged down, as we know, in, in a couple of basically forever wars. Um, and it's going to be extraordinarily bloody. I mean, I see Netanyahu this morning saying that every, every Hamas member is a dead man. Um, and that presumably extends to a greater or lesser extent to, you know, enablers, supporters. And that is a broad church if you're uh, behind uh, an Israeli rifle, I suspect, and you're and you're going into 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 Gaza. So, you know, what what will dominate the coming weeks, I suspect, is going to be um, that kind of that, that, that human destruction um, and the degree to which. The world is able to navigate the geopolitical complexities that Harry has just outlined and uh, engineer a, a, a peace deal as such or engineer an end to that conflict that is so clearly going to play out. Um, I think it remains to be seen. Uh, and the other thing that's interesting is that the, I mean, not interesting, but another factor is that the fact that there are so many Israeli hostages being held by Hamas and that gives mm. it some leverage. 
but it's hard to, I was reading a piece in Der Spiegel during the week in which a former German negotiator talked about negotiating the release of Israeli soldiers and citizens um, maybe a decade ago. And it, look, he it, it, it said it's always a very long drawn out process and um, it's, it's uh, Israel sometimes, Israel I think gave a thousand Palestinian prisoners to uh, extract one soldier in 2011. So it does value its citizens so highly and this is, this, this becomes a, a, a huge issue. But I think initially what Israel is going to do is it's just going to attack. And I think Hamas will be able to already, I think last night they said that 13 hostages were killed in one attack. You know, they'll be able to produce bodies saying that they were killed by, by Israeli attacks. It's going to be awful and just horrific. And it's going to create uh, um, horror both uh, within Gaza and also amongst within Israel where people see their own citizens uh, being killed as collateral damage in terms of, of this attack. Um, how that's going to play out, whether uh, the hostages are going to be killed, whether the hostages are going to be kept, whereas, whether Israel will be willing or not to go to a negotiation table. From what I've read, it seems that Israel will go all out on attack for maybe a period of time. It might be a month, it might be two months. And then after they feel that they have um, uh, gained a, a military victory, it's then that they might go to a mass uh, to the to the negotiating table and try to negotiate for for his hostages back. Right. But so, I, I can't see it happening over any short period of time. It's going mm-hmm. to be long drawn out. It's going to be terrible and it's going to be horrific. And um, next couple of weeks are going to be very fraught indeed. Oh, very very grim indeed. We'll leave it there. We'll be back after this. Oh, we're turning to a jollier subject now. Anything would be jollier, really, uh, I suppose. But in this case, the budget, not normally thought of as being jolly, but, you know. Uh, Jack, yeah. what do you make of it? Well, we were just saying in the break, so to speak, that it kind of died a death. Um, and it has been swept off the news agenda. And I think that even if it wasn't for the, the massive story that is that is coming out of the out of the, the Israeli attacks and Gaza, you know, this would not have been a budget that lived long in the memory. And it's kind of counterintuitive because it was a big giveaway budget, huge expansion uh, of permanent spending. There's no need to run through all the once-off measures. Everyone's probably sick to the back teeth of hearing about them. Um, but it was like a slightly diluted version of last year's budget. And I suspect that the political effect of it will be a slightly diluted version of last year's political effect. Can I effect. ask about the, about, about the once-off measures? One, one thing that struck me about them, looking at a lot of them kick in at various points over the yeah. calendar in 2024. Yeah. Possibly interesting and useful points from the point of view of a government that will be going to myself, the polls. I thought that myself uh, and, and, and you know I, I particularly with the, the childcare one which is as, as everyone knows is something I keep particularly close eye on because of the amount of my income that it demands but um, it was interesting to see that that's coming in next September so I did think you know is that timed to coincide with a, protect, a potential um, a potential autumn election next year mm. and you know maybe but I think it may be a kind of happy accident I think that the controlling dynamic for that is more the fact that there was just less money to kind of slosh around this year Year, and I think Roderick O'Gorman probably made the judgment that if he put it into a, a 25% cut in in the last quarter of next year, it becomes part of the base for 2025 and a permanent thing. Whereas if you spread that money across all 12 months of 2024... It does no harm from a political point of view, not, though. Free school books for secondary school students from yeah. next, next September, uh, children's allowance extended next September, all those kinds of things. You know? Yeah, exactly. And that, and, the, and that has always been one of the kind of theories of, of this government and their use of... Uh, of one-off payments that, you know, would they strategically time them in relation to a budget? Again, like maybe, but I don't think that's one of the kind of paradigms of this this budget-making process, mainly because I don't think they've actually made up their mind on when an election uh, is going to be. I think that there is competing school of thought uh, on, on, on when it should be. Eamon Ryan has been out several times now at this stage saying he thinks that the the uh, the 
the government should go full term all the way through to March of 25. I was talking to a minister last week who was absolutely clearly of the view that they should go next spring uh, before the local and Europeans and remove them as, as a kind of salient factor or a framing factor for a general election that may come in the autumn. All of which is to say, I don't think that they're they're decided enough on election strategy for budgets to be a tactic within that. Uh, I think that this is a budget where by, you know, all budgets are kind of complex and do a lot of things. But if you were to extract kind of one political theme from it, it's kind of broadly, you know, to protect the centre and, you know, to maintain standards of living. Um, and the SRI kind of says that this morning, it says that the budget is going to help households cope with the cost of inflation. And more or less, if you're in the most kind of broadly conceived of um, Middle Ireland, I think this budget is designed to signal to you that the current government and that mainstream politics is aligned with your interests. And even though there are obviously significant increases in welfare um, and pension payments and one-off payments to, to to the more needy and the more vulnerable. I think that if there was one message from this, um, it would be that, you know, this government, as I say, is, is aligned with the interests of, of Middle Ireland or the squeeze middle or whatever construction you want to put on it. Although not much of a vision, maybe. Um, maybe maybe we don't want a vision from our from, from our government. Sorry, I'm looking at Jared Howland, always an, an astute observer of these matters. Uh, he, uh, it's well worth reading today, actually. Uh, he he says that Heather Humphreys is the last proper Fine Gael minister standing uh, in the cabinet, and that that you know various measures which she's bringing in in her role as minister for social protection are kind of are are the sort of things he implies that that all government ministers should be doing, you know, in terms of proper reform and, you know, pension reform and things like that in her case. And the only other minister he has a good word for is Eamon Ryan, mm. who he says is actually, you know, has a programme of change and is implementing as much of it as he can and 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 that's happening. But he's kind of, by he's not damning them with faint praise, but by praising them, he's showing up, I suppose, the rest of them who he doesn't praise, which is that this is a government which is just, as, as, as Jack says, is, you know, sending out messages to its core constituency that, you know, you can trust us, it's all right, but it's not really doing anything terribly significant. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't think a budget has been a singular uh, uh, strategic visionary document since Charlie McCreevy mm. introduced decentralisation in late 2000. So we can all be grateful and, for that. And in a way, I mean, to to employ another cliche, I mean, that this budget, like so many other budgets, was a curate's was a curate's egg. Essentially, there was you know there were bits of this, bits of that. Uh, but I think Jack Jack has got got a plum. It was very when you when you add all the little bits together. Uh, the the little bits that they they, they that that went in, to, the most of them that went together in the one direction were directed at what Jack was describing as the squeeze middle, or those that would be more uh, liable to vote for Fine Gael or for Fianna Fáil. Uh, talking about everything from childcare uh, to the 1.1 tax package, which was very much geared at those on middle incomes more than than anything else, uh, to other incentives, even free school books for secondary school. Uh, uh, mortgage interest relief mortgage a much, interest, much broader scheme than interest relief, anticipated you know mm. and, and even though those things don't involve a huge amount of well they do amount a fair amount of money but the, the symbolic or the kind of you know the fact that I'm getting free school books mm. it's a kind of a one for everybody in the audience kind of feeling you know we're getting something here for free and it's universal and I think that that will have an impact on the uh, voter or the kind of demographic that they're trying uh, to reach in relation to uh, an election uh, Hugh uh, I think if the government sticks together 
and uh, is uh, deciding strategically on when an election will be held, I think the election will be held. And I've always held the view that I thought the election would be 2025. But that depends on stickability. So if we see any kind of flakiness or any of the any any part of the three-legged stool beginning to kind of uh, prise itself loose a little bit and get rickety, I, I think that we will go for an earlier election. Where are the it. where is the potential for rickettiness? I mean, I, I I would hazard a guess that there's not that much rickettiness on the green on the green leg of the stool. Eamon Ryan, as you say, is very yeah. keen to go, you know, to go the distance, and the Greens probably don't expect or expect there's a pretty good chance that they won't be returning to government. It, so they, they, they want to implement as much of their agenda as they every, can. There's every chance they're going to have. So the losses, ricketiness yeah. is somewhere within the two bigger parties. Yes, yeah. and and I think more in Finnegall than Fianna Fáil of late, but. I could be wrong in that. I mean, there are questions in relation to leadership in both parties, but I mean, I think it would be inconceivable that Leo Varadkar would not lead Fianna Fine Gael into the next mm. election. I mean, the a leader being taken out while Taoiseach is, is unprecedented in the Irish context. There are also question marks within Fianna Fáil about what Michal Martin is going to do. The Michal goes to Brussels thing, is that off the table I now? I think it's completely it off there? the table. I think the, the narrative within Fianna Fáil from everybody that I speak to is that Michal has uh, refound his mojo and thinks that he might have another go and that he, th- he thinks that he might be Taoiseach again, which is interesting. Uh, um, but uh, if the party ratings uh, continue to kind of plateau or even fall more, I think that that might evoke a certain amount of nervousness amongst the backbenchers. But within Fianna Fáil, I just don't think there's an appetite or a momentum uh, to mount any kind of challenge against Micheál Martin. So what Micheál Martin decides in relation to strategy, electoral strategy, electoral approach to the party is what will go between now and whenever he steps down as leader. This segues into a subject which has come up in this podcast with Pat, I think, in particular, a few times over the last few weeks, which is whether tensions increase between the two larger parties in the final year of this government because they're they're together and they have to hang together, but they also need to differentiate themselves because they are in electoral competition with each other and then there'll probably be questions of, if not a formal electoral pact, yeah. they'll be looking for transfers, which might actually save their bacon in, in many cases. Our colleague Cormac McQuinn has, uh, uh, we're going to flag ahead, ahead with this, he is an article in tomorrow's Irish Times where he talked to uh, two politicians, one from Fianna Fáil, one from Fine Gael, Regina Doherty and Malcolm Byrne, about what the differences are between the parties. And it's a, you know, it's a truism or it's a recurring refrain from the opposition that there's something called FFG. Mm. Uh, there's no difference between them. They're mm. all the same. And it, it's an interesting conversation. People should have a read of it tomorrow to see what 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 the actual politicians think about that. Yeah, I, mm. I think there was a time when when it was easy to distinguish what, you know, you have to go 20 years back or 30 years back to kind of find a kind of a clear demarcation lines between both parties. But society has changed and the parties haven't changed with society and they were both um, uh, cleaving to a template that, 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 had, that, that had reached its time. I mean, Does that mean both, there is no difference between them? The, the, what, I, I think Fine Gael has been more definite in terms of of identifying itself and identifying where it, where where it, it stands on the spectrum. It has placed itself centre, maybe slightly centre right in terms of its of its economics policy. Liberal, very much so. Liberal in terms of of its social credentials nowadays, and um, you know it's the, going back to that Leo Varadkar credo. You know we're the party that stands with the person who gets up early in the morning, and even though that has been much. 
denounced over the years, uh, there is a certain ring to it. Although uh, an awful lot of it, it seems to me, is performative and rhetorical rather than actually in terms of concrete politics. That's politics, that's politics Hugh. <laughs> All politics is performative. Jeez, we should just wrap this up and stop doing it then, shouldn't we? Uh, well, there's there's a performative element to politics. There's okay. a doing element as well. I mean, that, that thing but I think, I think Fianna Fáil has had more difficulty in defining wh- where it is. And you can see yeah. it in all of the polls. I mean, it's it's a party of that's a, that attracts its support from the old and it has singularly attra- failed to attract any support from 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 younger voters uh, because younger voters think that it's a party that's associated with the parents. Yeah, and they I don't they, really know what the party stands they had, for. They had this enormous identity crisis after the crash anyway because what Fianna Fáil was about for so long was effectively, you know, the default party of government and the party that best pulled the levers of state mm. and was able to yeah. deliver for people. And, and it'll, never be, and it'll never, never be that again. it'll never be that again. Those days are gone. And after the, um, after the financial crash, you know, it became aligned with uh, with mismanagement, uh, with, uh, you know, not necessarily directly associated with the financial crash, but with political corruption in office and all these negative things. So it had to go off for a time and kind of puzzle with itself about what it's about. And I still don't think it's arrived at a satisfactory conclusion. I was talking to a bunch of Fianna Fallers, um in the aftermath of the budget, just trying to get a sense of, you know, were they pleased with it? And, and, and in the round they were. Um, they didn't think it was going to win them an election. But I was trying to tease out this idea, like, was it, was it a Fianna Fáil budget? And what is a Fianna Fáil budget, you know, when it's at home anyway? Hmm. And... Really, frankly, speaking privately, they will admit that, you know, this is not a budget that's demonstrably or, or, or you know, clearly different from a Donoghue budget, from Pascal Donoghue budget of this government. Um, and that the, the, the two guys kind of, you know, rule as a block when it comes to, to spending and tax. And in and a way, have, look have, into have a similar, they, they look, look similar values. Yeah, they, I mean, they look increasingly indistinguishable anyway. Yeah, and but, I, I'm not, if you were to ask me what, what I think their differences on, of principle would be between the two of them, I'd be hard put to what, come up what, with what, what was interesting was in... The course of those conversations with seven or eight people, uh, I'd say maybe four or five of the Fianna Fáil's described themselves uh, or the party as centre-left, which uh, I think will go hand in hand with a theme that is emerging from Michal Martin and Michael McGrath around the budget, which is about building for the future. And I think this is the kind of nascent Fianna Fáil brand that they're trying to create, um, that they are centre-left where Fianna Gael is centre-right and that they are inherently kind of dependable, trustworthy, steady eddies. And when it comes to like a kind of political dynamism, it lacks a lot of the momentum of Sinn Féin's change message. But if the next election is about stability and trustworthiness in difficult times, as opposed to a dramatic change to address, um, you know, chronic problems in service Well, provision. those are going well, to be the two those different are, those presentations, are going to be the two they? camps. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. then, and then within that, it becomes, you know, about Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael identifying against each other and Fianna Gael probably more trying to, you know, present themselves as a kind of dynamic pro-business yeah, and, send, and send a right party. I mean, the question is to, to what extent that'll be successful and, you know, what will the what will the battle lines be between them? I think justice will be one. Uh, I think, strangely enough, Fianna Fáil perceive um, Fianna Gael as having a weak underbelly on justice to on, an extent. On what kind of issues? On, well, I mean, like, like literally, just just criminal justice, you know, mm. like law and order issues. I think that they 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 think that you know, like we had a summer dominated by discussion of of street crime and violent assaults in Dublin city centre, and I think that particularly Fianna Fáil TDs and 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 potential candidates in Dublin view that as as, as somewhere they they can win I, on I, criticism. Of yeah, Helen I think McEntee they believe that Helen McEntee was probably more beholden to the equality side of the brief than the justice side of the brief. Yeah, which I'm not sure is borne out by uh, no, by rigorous analysis of, of view, her time yeah. in office, but that is that it so goes the theory, you know. Mm. Um, but whether that actually translates into into something that voters pick up on. 
I just don't know. You know, I'm, I'm not convinced that people really do identify a difference between Fianna Fáil I, and I think and if you're looking at the stage. scale, uh, I think you almost need a microscope to kind of yeah. find the difference between Fianna Gael on the centre-right and uh, Fianna Fáil on the centre-left. There, there are lots of... And they, they would probably have to... They, they may end up strategically aligning yeah. in advance of the next election and fighting the election on a joint platform. What is interesting is that, is that there is no shortage of a kind of deep wellspring of tribalism within Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil against each other when the moment when the moment erupts. I mean, Yes, remember, and that comes out in this in, in, Cormac, in Cormac's piece which people can read tomorrow. Yeah, that, that but out, remember, you know. remember the, 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 uh, the Indo op-ed by the four junior ministers and like it was it was real kind of gloves off battle between the, the two parliamentary parties taking lumps out of each other behind the scenes. So like there there is that wellspring that they can they can dip into. But, but it's really but that's, whether, you might as well say you're a Shell supporter, you're a Bose supporter. You know, that's, it doesn't matter much more than that, whether, does it? Whether anyone else cares mm, apart yeah. from, you know, the, the, the tribes themselves. I think is the real question. Anyway, we're we're going to wrap it up pretty soon. But before we do, we always uh, ask our contributors for an article which particularly caught their fancy this week. Harry, you were reading a piece by Mark Paul. Yeah, a very good piece. Um, it, 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 two, two big events happened for the Labour Party in Britain uh, this week. The first was that they won a, a, a by-election in Scotland. And as we know, the Scottish National Party has utterly dominated Scottish politics for a generation. Uh, but, the, but the retirement of Nicola Sturgeon and the, the difficulties within the Scottish National Party, Labour really has taken uh, advantage of it. It won a by-election uh, with a swing of 20%. It was very impressive. And it, it it shows that the party is on an upward momentum and has the potential of winning, you know, maybe uh, over half, perhaps two thirds of seats in Scotland. And if it does... And that would make the calculations very different, wouldn't it? Because after the last election, one of the ideas was that Labour had lost Scotland mm. and it was so difficult to get anywhere near uh, a majority on the basis of England alone to win so many seats back from the Tories. But now, if Scotland's in play, not only is, is it winnable, but, a, you know, a significant majority, a substantial majority is within sight uh, for Absolutely. Labour. And it's done very well in, in by-elections and the, the so-called Red Wall uh, constituencies in the north of England as well. So it seems to be making a very strong resurgence in former strongholds that had lost out both to the Tories in the last election in the Red Wall constituencies and to uh, SNP in Scotland. And Keir Starmer seems to have finally found his mojo. So, so uh, Mark's article was looking at those, but also looking at the Labour Party conference that was taking place this week uh, as well. So he started off with the, the incident where uh, a protester poured glitter over Keir Starmer just as he was about to begin his speech. Did he he handled him, it pretty well. Didn't oh, he do looked him any so harm. annoyed though. Like, he looked <laughs> yeah, really didn't do him any harm though. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than getting kind of cold water or custard pie or something. Yeah. But in any instance, um, uh, he, he, what, what was interesting with Mark is that Mark was predicting that the election campaign, when it does happen, is going to be extremely dirty. And he thinks that, that, that the, the, the Labour are preparing for the Tories to, to use low tactics, as he describes it, against them. And Labour are uh, uh, beginning to intend to respond in kind. Uh, but he does show that Lee Keir Starmer, after a relatively, you know, he, a lot of things were said about him, a lot of was expected of him when he became Labour leader. And I think it would be fair to say that he disappointed uh, for his first year or more as leader. He just failed to assert himself. And he seemed to be kind of bland, a little bit beige, uh, didn't kind of set out a, a strong vision, uh, didn't provide uh, enough of a counter to the Jeremy Corbyn years. But I think in the last six months or a year, I think Keir Starmer is beginning to come into his own 
and his speech. It might be all, all a question of timing, you know. Yeah, you I know, think it was. Did the, ground, did the spade work first, you know. Yeah, but he seems to have he, he seems to have a united party around him. He has some very strong uh, people in place in his shadow cabinet and he is beginning to show a kind of a policy platform on which he is going to fight the next election. And the other thing that I found to be very intriguing was that the two pillars on which the election will be fought in Britain will be, surprise, surprise, uh, housing and health. The health services there mm-hmm. are in tatters at the moment and there is a huge shortage of housing, especially affordable and social housing. Well, you know, there, there is well. a certain kind of Irish narcissism that presumes that the problems we have are sort of peculiar to ourselves and are peculiarly awful here. But, you know, housing and health are big issues in, in most Western countries, you know, right now. And massive in Britain at the moment. And yeah. they're going to be massive for their general election. Right. Um, I'm going to pick an article by Conor O'Cleary, who is a distinguished former journalist with the Irish Times, but he was also the biographer of Chuck Feeney, the philanthropist who uh, who died this week. I have to admit, I'm not usually a great fan of philanthropy. I'd prefer if billionaires paid their taxes and then, you know, people's education and health could be, could be paid for that way. But you cannot but help admire Chuck Feeney, who, unlike most philanthropists, gave away his entire fortune, the whole lot of it. He had it all given away by, I think, four years ago, 2017. He managed to give away the last the last tranche of it, who was kind of militantly opposed to having his name put on anything, or for, in most cases, even for people to know that he had given the money that allowed, you know, buildings in every single university in Ireland, uh, healthcare facilities of all sorts, very judicious investment in key parts of the peace process during the, ni- the 1990s. That's just in Ireland, you know, he had huge amounts of money in the States, in Australia, in in Asia as well. And so Conor O'Cleary, who knew him well, writes a, writes a very good piece about him. And I just have to say that uh, it, clearly he gave more money to Irish people. And many of the people listening to this podcast right now, whether through education or health benefits, will have benefited from his from his, his generosity. And he really leaves a, a mark behind him. It's a good point, because I think one of the most interesting things about Chuck Feeney is that he's actually quite unphilanthropic in his philanthropic philanthropy um, because often the purpose of philanthropy from wealthy people is more about kind of power and access and you know effectively kind of preserving your status and the fact that A he did it uh, secretly for so long and B his goal was actually to 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 immiserate himself in some ways and to, to divest himself of all his wealth it was so totally removed from some of the normal reasons that Absolutely. wealthy yeah. people give money you know it was it was actually uh a genuine, I think, approach to to philanthropy, sure, as opposed to, to something. The Sacklers, yeah, yeah, as opposed to the Sacklers, <laughs> which is exactly where. I was or you go, know, yeah. there are various other university buildings scattered around Ireland that have the names of various uh, various well-off kind of people like, attached yeah. to them. You Almost know, like vanity projects. Um, mm. yeah. yeah, he he ended up in an apartment in, uh, uh, and he he had a Murphy bed, one of these beds that you. So he he lived a yeah. very frugal frugal life. Yeah, and and it was just amazing. he seems to have had a damp, damascene conversion in his. 50s where he became so rich and he just got sick of the circuit and he just didn't want to live like that anymore yeah. and he decided he was going to divest himself of everything. Yeah, remarkable yeah. man. Remarkable yeah. stuff. Jack, what were you reading? So I, I'm very much looking forward to a break from the news cycle uh, this weekend and much of that is going to be built around the uh, the Rugby World Cup quarterfinal on, on Saturday uh, evening. 
And there's a smashing piece today in today's paper, Friday's paper by Gordon Manning about when the uh, the Barretts came to uh, to Ballinacree in County Meath in 1999. The Barretts being the the family of the three brothers who are going to line out against Ireland. Uh, Bowden, uh, the superstar of, of the All Blacks for nigh on a decade now. Scott and Geordie, his brothers who play alongside him. And they're, they're three of six kids who uh, in 99, just as as Meath was enjoying the afterglow of its uh, of its senior football uh, championship win, relocated to to Meath. Uh, so the dad, Kevin, could uh, manage a, a dairy farm there. And Kevin played for Buccaneers and the lads played uh, Ga often in their often in their in their bare feet. Mm-hmm. And it's just this lovely, evocative piece of sports writing. And I think inside most kind of news and current affairs journalists, there's a sports writer trying to get out. And I just really enjoyed Gordon's piece. And so does that mean that it had events turned out differently they could have been running out onto the pitch in green jerseys quite tomorrow. possibly yeah and, and to the extent that uh, Jabby Alonso who also once came here um, the, the former so Liverpool many Real Madrid and, and, and Spanish World Cup winner uh, could have talked out for, for the boys in green but we're doing all right in the rugby field anyway without them, but uh, they would improve any team. But look, it's a, it's a great piece. Of, it's a great piece of writing, and it's it's a very GA piece of writing as well. You know, yeah, it's no, like I, I read the piece. Yeah, it's like it, it, it's 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 family and yeah. community and all those things that you don't really associate and, as much with rugby. Back, they, so it's a lovely GA piece but, but about the, a rugby story. The, the Barrett family have have gone back to that little village regularly yeah, over the there's, intervening there's, there's years. Footage, there's rather and bizarre get, footage of Bowden doing a hacker by himself. <laughs> outside the national school, I didn't even know that was possible. And then, and then, the, and then the kids doing a hacker for him yeah. in the school, Asperger. Yeah, yeah. So it's a lovely, it's, it's a, a really piece nice piece, beautiful and, piece. You know, just one of those lovely pieces of sports writing okay, that isn't Asperger. about the match I, I at def- all. I definitely paid to watch that. All right, uh, and and if you are not a subscriber to Irish Times, you too should pay and sign yes. up uh, by going to irishtimes.com/slash-subscribe. That's all for today. Thanks very much to Jack and to Harry for joining us. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you after the weekend. Until then, good. Bye and enjoy that match.